Hey everyone, this year the American Craft Spirits Association is celebrating its 10th anniversary. To kick off the celebration, this podcast is part of a special series of conversations with some of ACSA's founders and first board members. Some of these guests will also be appearing at a Founders Forum at ACSA's 10th Anniversary Distillers Convention and Vendor Trade Show this February 10th in Portland, Oregon. Visit AmericanCraftSpirits.org to learn more. Thanks. ACSA is where I met some of my best friends, and I value it so much. It gave us all, it gave us all a lot, you know, a reason to exist and a place to be and a group that was ours. I think those things are almost, you know, almost even more than the dollars and cents of it all, like the sense of belonging and that the confidence that comes from that, I think it helped a lot of us. From the American Craft Spirits Association and Craft Spirits Magazine, this is the Craft Spirits Podcast. I'm John Page, and today on the program, Nicole Austin. Nicole is general manager and distiller of Cascade Hollow Distilling Company, the maker of Tennessee's George Dickel whiskeys. She's been a fierce advocate for the distilling industry, and she even has a tattoo to prove it. She was a founding board member of ACSA and previously served as co-chair of its legislative convention and state guild committees. In a recent conversation with me and Jeff Cialetti, Nicole shared her earliest memories of ACSA, including discussions about defining craft spirits and the road to permanent federal excise tax relief for craft distillers, as well as her move to Cascade Hollow. Gosh, um, I, for some reason, the first thing that comes to mind when you're talking about the beginning of ACSA was actually our first like in-person board meeting. Um, you know, and we all got together and I remember this poor woman, we, you know, they hired someone to be like a facilitator for the day and just, you know, a bunch of like cynical anti-corporate craft people in a room being walked through like a very corporate procedure for, uh, you know, how to like develop the strategy was I think a pretty funny situation and incredibly frustrating for this poor woman who had to try and wrangle all of us. Um, but I remember, you know, that was the first time we really sat in a room and thought about, you know, what is the purpose of this organization? Like, what is the intent? What are we trying to accomplish? And that was, uh, you know, that, that, that was exciting kind of to wrap your arms around and like, think about, and, and, you know, I think we've, I wish I could remember the exact language of what we came up with, but I think it's held pretty true to, you know, ultimately our goal and purpose of the organization was to grow the craft spirits industry, you know, just to, to create the kinds of conditions where the craft spirits industry could succeed. And I think the organization has done that, you know, and is doing that. I mean, yeah, I was, I would say so, because I think when the organization was founded, there were something like 650 craft distillers in the U S and now there's, four times that many so that's you know i I like to think acsa had something to do with that so i think it did and i think we were we were incredibly lucky i think to have had 
the guidance and be able to learn some lessons from the other industries, like to see, you know, what the Brewers Association and like, you know, what had happened, the trade associations and wine. I think we were, we were really, really lucky, I think, to be able to take some good lessons from them. And I think we were all very conscious when we started that, you know, we were thinking long-term, right? Like we were thinking about setting this organization up for success on like, you know, a 50 year timeline and not a one year timeline. And that, you know, especially the Brewers Association, I think we took a lot of lessons from their leadership. And I think we were actually quite lucky that a lot of people in craft spirits had had, you know, a lot of experience on as a craft brewer before and with those folks. And so we were able to really take like, you know, I remember having having very intentional and conscious discussions around, you know, planning, even though none of us could pay our rent, we were distilling on tiny stills at that time and like barely even profitable. You know, we had big ambitions. We were planning for like, well, you know, when people get bought, like how, how, what percentage of ownership is still makes you independent, you know, like what are the things that are going to define a member of the American Craft Spirits Association? And, you know, sort of in a backhanded way by doing that, you're saying, who is a craft distiller and who is not, which was quite a contentious thing in 2013. You know, that was like a big argument to be having. And I think we were really lucky that we didn't, you know, the, the Brewers Association, and I don't want to speak for them, I think they would admit themselves. And we've heard from some memberships that like they thought too small when they got started. You know, they just looked at like the biggest craft brewer at the time and sort of doubled it. And they were like, oh, that's the size cap, you know? And without realizing the massive growth that they were going to experience whereas you know we said well hey irrespective of how big we are now like how big are the big guys you know just be be much smaller than that and it left a big ceiling for us and I think we're lucky because it meant that we didn't have to spend the last 10 years as an industry arguing and fighting about who was in and who was out you know and instead we could focus on just like making things better. Um, I'm I'm glad that we had the benefit of those learnings. And it's so funny now to think about how seriously we were taking it, but man, we took ourselves so seriously. <laughs> we were, we were like, no, this is important. We have to get this right. Um, and I think we did, you know, it was at least in the sense of it wasn't a fight. And we also talked about that X factor, you know, the thing besides size and independence, like what makes a craft distiller a craft distiller? And, you know, I think we're also really lucky to have learned from the Brewers Association and not get into sort of weird nitpicky fights about ingredients or particular methodologies and, you know, whose stuff is good enough or not good enough. And to you know, what we landed on, you know, I think was really right, which is like, if you're, if you're, you just have to be honest. You have to be upfront about what you're doing and ethical. And if you're being honest about it, you know, presumably you're proud of it. And if you're proud of it, then presumably it's worth calling crap, you know? And I think that's a, if I'm, I don't think people realize maybe how much getting all of that put together helps set the stage for us to be able to focus on the things that really matter as opposed to fighting about stuff that doesn't. How how much were you also thinking just about, and maybe you weren't, but I, I'm curious from the perspective of somebody who covered beer for a long time before I came to this role, you know, when 
when somebody sells a, a craft brewery, you know, there's this outrage from from the public and from fans yeah. and drinkers, you know, um, and it doesn't seem to me like that's ever really been a thing in the craft spirits business. And maybe I'm just not paying careful enough attention. Um, but but I'm curious if that was a, a thing that was talked about then at all amongst you all. And then, and then even, you know, yeah. yourself, you you left a craft distil- distillery and, you know, you worked for a distillery owned by Diageo now. So like, was there ever any kind of like pushback on you? Like, oh, you left us. <laughs> um, I, yeah, I cannot tell you how nervous I was. So that announcement, the announcement that I took that role, that I was going to be the distiller for Dickel and I was going to go work for Diageo was made public on day two of the Pittsburgh ACSA convention. So I was in Pittsburgh with in a hotel full of craft distillers and it was about to get publicly announced that I was going to work for Diageo. I was so scared. I, I was wearing like maxi pads in my armpits cause I was sweating. Cause I was like, people are going to throw tomatoes at me. Like I, that was fully what I was expecting. Um, and that is not at all what happened. Like people were so proud. I think excited for me, like, um, you know, I think a lot of people took it as a real, like, a, a kind of a, a statement from the larger industry that craft spirits were really, really valid. Like it was validating, right? If they, if Diageo thinks the time and experience that I gained, you know, working at craft distillers is valuable to them, then that must be because they recognize the value in what we're doing. And you know, I think they took it really positively. And and again, I think part of that goes back to us at the very, very beginning, before anyone had even been thinking about getting, you know, outside investment, allowing for that, being really clear that it was like, oh, I think we said 35% or maybe it was 40. I can't remember the exact number that we chose, but we said already, you're still a voting member if you're majority independent, you know, if you're majority independently owned. We were always assuming that the big guys were going to want to get involved and I think some of that maybe is like, it's really, really hard to make money in this business. It is so hard. Like it is such a struggle. And why would you want, you know, why would you want to tell somebody that they can't exit their business, you know, that they can't like retire and send their kids to college? I don't know. It's, I think we all honestly wanted the best for each other and didn't want to tell anyone that they couldn't do what they needed to do to allow their business to survive. You know, it was it's just a really different attitude, I think. Maybe because we like each other more. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> uh what curious to know what motivated you initially to, you know, to to want to be on the board of on that first board of directors. <laughs> well, uh the real story is because uh, someone, you know, a, a, who shall remain unnamed from some other organization told me I was too pretty to be a distiller. And that's, uh, you know, when it occurred to me that maybe we needed an actual professional trade association that might act like professionals. Um, there was also a particularly notable incident involving a stripper on stage at a past convention, not ACSA because we are professionals and would never do that. But 
really showed me that a measure of professionalism would probably benefit the industry and all of us. And it was strongly motivational to like, you know, set the tone. And I had, um, I guess I had uh, hubris. I don't know. I was in my twenties, you know, I, my ego was large. I was like, we can, you know, God, I was both very egotistical and very, very naive. And like this little, you know, just fresh out of my like punk rock high school and college days. And I was like, if we all come together, you know, we can make this industry better for all of us. And I genuinely believe that. And all of those things floated me onto that first board. And uh, you, you've been pretty instrumental in the FET fight. Um, it's now a reality. Uh, tell us about how that issue sort of came to the forefront at the creation of ACSA and what uh, what the effort was like making that a reality. I mean, there were obviously some like small victories here and there before the big one. There was, you know, everybody. Yeah, we almost got onto the DOT bill. That was very exciting. Yeah. So, so tell us about that. Tell us about like each of those kind of the peaks and valleys of that whole fight that ended up taking probably the first seven years of ACSA's existence. It did. Yeah. That was incredible. Um, a lot of it early days was just finding our feet. You know, I think, uh, I remember, you know, we, there was that first version of the bill and obviously, you know, like Ralph and Ted Huber and, um, you know, some other folks had, had really been working on like at the very, very start, even just to, to get something written down, you know, to get something on paper and, you know, get it through some committees. And obviously we had Tom Reed and Ways and Means who was coming out of the Finger Lakes and he was on a really key committee. Um, and that was really helpful, like to have someone, you know, who was based in upstate New York and sort of understood like craft beverage alcohol, you know, because of the wine region. So we, we had started, but I remember it still seemed, you know, like a mile away, like that first victory when you're like, we have a bill. And then the next thing you envision in your head is like the schoolhouse rock video of like, and now the bill becomes the law, you know? And I think it was really, it was really soul crushing when we first realized that that is not at all how that happens. And like, just because you have a good idea and a, a solid bill and you have people behind you and like something makes sense, like actually that's not how Washington works at all. And like things don't get voted on unless they're, you know, there's like leadership level decisions to actually move bills. And there are all these big like omnibus bills. And, you know, we had to really learn about like how actually bills get passed, you know, and that has so little to do with having a good idea, you know, and everything to do with like the poli broader politics that are so much bigger than you. And that was very disheartening at first, I think, where it was like, well, we have this bill and we have all these sponsors and, you know, we've been doing all these lobby days and working so hard to get sponsors. And I think we kind of thought that that was all we needed and didn't really realize that actually there's a massive ladder to climb. And that came, you know, as we got ourselves together and got a little more professional, those things came into view, but realizing that's just the first step. And then you have to get, you know, committee leadership, and then you have to get sort of into, you know, you have to get a coalition together. So it's not just you. And that was hard. Um, you know, in the early days, I remember 
you know, we were never quite sure like who was on our side or who we wanted to work with, you know, um, like piecing out, you know, discus, like, are they friend or foe, you know, um, trying to figure out how to work productively with them. Um, and Ted Huber was so instrumental in that because he was on the craft board of discus as well. He served as such a good bridge to, you know, we really, we realized we had to really grow up and come together and, you know, Ron Wyden was so instrumental in that, like getting that original version of the bill, which it was an idea on paper that was incredibly helpful, but it had to get, you know, we needed some professionals. We needed like competent bill writers in bigger, you know, Senate offices to like start to rewrite it in a way that would work and getting, you know, the, um, the, the, coalition bill you know that everything it was like big beer small beer big wine small wine and the big distillers and small distillers and getting everyone into the same bill which was so you know there were definitely some voices that were not in favor of any kind of compromise right you know that like the idea like well we don't why would we be giving uh, these other people anything and um you know, we had to work through a lot of that, I think, internally to get everyone on the same page that, you know, we won't get anywhere if we don't do this. Like we, you know, we have to work together and you have to make compromises with everybody in order to even get considered to actually get attached to a bill that is moving, you know, and then you had to get through the whole next hurdle of like, and now we need you to advocate for this bill that we are now attached to to actually get passed, even though you may or may not agree with the 40 bazillion other things that are in it, you know, in a, in an era where like politics were getting increasingly polarized, that was actually a pretty big lift, you know, to get all of these different distillers, you know, our strength was in our grassroots, right? Our strength was in the fact that we had distilleries in every state and we could make a lot of phone calls you know we had constituents in a lot of different places and state guilds in a lot of different places but it was hard I think initially to convince some people that this compromising was worth it you know and that that was a big part you know to getting things over the hump and getting people to show up for lobby days I remember God, Washington DC hotels are so expensive. And like Mark and Ralph and I, like we were paying for all those things out of pocket, you know, like just being thousands of dollars in the hole, which was particularly hard when people were just like screaming at you for being some kind of like, for like selling out, you know, <laughs> like the working with like evil big distillers or something that was, um, there were some disheartening moments, which, was when it was right around in the middle of all that that Mark and I agreed to get a tattoo if we ever were successful. And that was how that came about. Um, this is how we ended up getting tattooed in Pittsburgh together, celebrating the 2017 Craft Beverage Modernization and Tax Reform Act. Because there were certainly some dark days in the middle where we thought it was never going to happen. Um, and then what a big deal, you know, when it finally got through. And even then it was, it sunsetted after a year. And, you know, I think if you had told me in 2013 that we would be working on this for nearly a decade, um, I would have been very disheartened. But looking back, it was pretty worth it. It's, I think it's the first time in the history of the United States that the tax on distilled spirits has ever been reduced, like ever. It's monumental. It's a monumental achievement. Um, you know, not not to be, I'm glad that you're taking the time to memorialize it because 
yeah, I think it it definitely fundamentally made the difference between stable and not, you know, profitable and not for a lot of distillers, I think. So what do you think the next hill to climb is uh, regulatorily or legislatively? It's not for me to say. I'm not a I'm not a craft distiller anymore, you know. I think uh, I'm so I was such a part of it, but I think now it's not really certainly it's not for me to decide for them you know um i know dcc is a big conversation that people are having i know um uh, you know so a lot of work to be done on like labeling and label rules and i think there's there's a there's a ton that we could take on um you know safety is a personal passion of mine so i'm always trying to uh you know bring some more focus there as we scale up but i don't know it's not for me to say no no you're allowed to have opinions, though. I am allowed to have opinions, but I, you know, I don't feel like I even know enough. You know, I was so immersed in the day to day of craft distilling at that time. It was just so, it was such a huge part of everything I was doing every day. And now, I'm a little bit removed, you know, from what it feels like to be a craft distiller in this moment. So, and I think my role now is more like to help than to tell yeah i was gonna say you know you're you're still participating actively like in in uh acsa conventions and and giving presentations so you're you still do have your your foot in the door in that way at least right oh absolutely i think uh, you know education is so important right so like the you know ultimately my goal going all the way back to 2013 was always i want to be in this industry for the rest of my life you know for the rest of my career like i this is I want there to be, I want to be making American whiskey. You know, I had, I, I went through uh, yet another very silly corporate exercise uh, just yesterday where they ask you to define a purpose, uh, you know, like a personal purpose, which, you know, I rolled my eyes so hard. They've actually got stuck in the back of my head, but <laughs> the personal purpose that I identified was to reinvent American whiskey, to be coveted, dynamic, and inclusive. And I don't think we're going to get to that place without ACSA being successful. You know, it's not going to be just me, but like the next generation of distillers and the next generation after that, like we have to keep growing this industry. We have to keep, keep it fresh, keep it interesting. Like, you know, keep letting people come in and not close the door behind us and help everybody be better and do better. You know, I always just say that like there's every craft distiller out there is just an advocate for having people care about what they drink and getting people interested in the quality of what they're drinking. And like that helps all of us just to have more and more people who are educated and give a shit. And I want all of them to be making the best possible stuff they can make in the safest possible way, you know, and in the most stable possible business so that we can have this really dynamic industry. I think it behooves us all. So it's not for me to say from a board member position anymore, but I definitely still believe in that mission and you know the best way for me to contribute now is more education so i'm focusing on that then of course all the safety stuff because i will always be over here advocating for safety um any advice for new distillers uh especially those just getting involved with acsa or you know just anyone looking to get into the industry what you know you have plenty of hindsight now as 
you know, someone who's very experienced and very accomplished in this space. So what, what do you, what words do you have for them? Mm. Read the discus fire protection manual. <laughs> Number one, um, read our new, uh, you know, risk guidance document on distillation pressure relief. Number two, both very exciting. Um, I think also just more broadly, like blending is very important. That is the difference between mediocre and great. So like being really mindful about that part of your process. And then for someone just getting in, I think having a clear vision of what success looks like for you is probably the most important thing. Because so many folks that I talked to that were early on, you know, they just want, they wanted to be successful, but struggled to articulate what that meant. You know, like, does that mean just having a cash positive business that can survive like at any scale? You know, does that mean making a certain dollar amount? You know, does that mean selling to a big distillery? Like what is success? Because that will dictate every decision that you make, you know, between here and then. And so if you don't have a clear vision of what it is exactly that you're trying to accomplish, you know, so many of them would say things to me like, you know, but if someone offers to buy me, I'm like, yeah, that doesn't happen. Like, that's not just a, you know, you're positioning yourself for that kind of exit or you aren't. And, um, you know, those are, I think a lot of people would benefit from having a little bit more thoughtful conversation about that from day one. Uh, I'm, I'm realizing there's, there's something we, we probably should have asked earlier. Um, yeah which is you were part of, you know, the, the, the group of folks who I guess kind of first met with ACSA CEO, Margie A.S. Mm-hmm. before she yes, was, I... before she was ACSA CEO. So what are Tom your, and I hired her. Yeah. What, what are your, what are your memories <laughs> of, of uh, not even just like the first time meeting her, but um, you know, the, the first time you, you heard about her and, and then also just kind of the, the journey to that happening man I loved her energy so much um you know we were tired (laughs) and overwhelmed is a little bit why we knew we needed um you know somebody to come into that role I don't think any of us appreciated when we took on the board membership like just how much unpaid work we were taking on for ourselves and man she had just this this energy, this like belief, you know, that in herself and this, she just projected like confidence and safety and competence and professionalism. And like, um, I, I think we were both just so like comforted by that, you know, like, like we would trust you, you know, we trust you, you understand what we're trying to achieve and like, you can go and do it on your own. Um, and in particular, at that time, the, you know, organizing the convention, what a massive, massive, massive job that is, um, was a huge piece. And that was mission critical because we were not going to survive if we didn't make money, you know, doing that. And then, you know, all the work in DC and she just, of all the applicants we had, she jumped out as just so obviously the best person, you know, for the role. Man. The, for the best decision I've ever made on behalf of ACSA because she just did such an incredible job. 
you know, if, if you, if we go back to that, you know, early days, you know, you're the, you're the only woman on that first board. Um, if somebody yeah. had told you that, you know, 10 years later, this thing would be, there'd be a CEO, obviously you're talking to two guys right now, but yeah. that the CEO of the organization would be a woman and that, you know, the president, <laughs> vice president, secretary, treasurer, and then 40% of the board seats would be women. Like, what would you have thought at that point? That's why we're doing this, right? Like, that was why. The reason I became a craft distiller was because it didn't seem like there was any room, you know, in the commercial distilling industry. Like, I I think it's easy to forget now. It's not like it was a million years ago, but even at that time, you know, in two, it was late 2000s so I was, you know, had decided that that was the industry I really wanted to be in. And at that time in America, it was very closed. You know, it was very like, you don't get to run a distillery unless you have the right last name and you have to be one of the sons, you know, like born into that family. And that that was why we were doing this, right? Like that was why Craft Spirits was existing, was to like open the industry up, you know, and not not just to women, not, you know, but just in general to sort of shake it off of its, you know, closed up, boring. I mean, people were making plenty of beautiful whiskeys. And I think, I think that may have been part of the difference between us and beer is like most craft distillers, I think really respected and loved and enjoyed a, a lot of the whiskeys that were coming out of the big distilleries, but just wanted an opportunity to give it a crack ourselves, you know, and 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 to resurrect a little bit of this time when, you know, America's capable of making so many whiskeys. You know, there's there's regionality in here. Like it, the industry was always capable of being so much more than it was. It was this beautiful thing that could be so much bigger. And I, th- I think there are a lot of people who sensed an opportunity in that. And certainly I was one of them that, you know, banging on the door of an existing sort of power structure was just not going to be a that was just going to be endless frustration but we could come over here and build a new one you know we could build a new one for ourselves that reflects our values and you know I'm, I'm pretty proud of our industry that you know representation is one of those values and you know we're this is only the beginning right there's a lot of women in leadership which like incredible but we're not resting there you know we're we're working to push that even further. That's why Step Up exists. That's why, you know, we're we're going to keep pushing this industry until it is truly coveted and dynamic and inclusive. That's why we're here, right? Yeah, and I, I guess so. So we can't we can't talk to you about what the next ten years of ACSA look like. But what does the next <laughs> ten years uh, look like for Cascade Hollow? Hmm. Well. I'm excited to kind of keep broadening this tent too. Um, You know, now I'm really, really lucky to be in a company like Diageo and established in that company. And now I can start to think more about, you know, how to use these powers for good. (laughs) Um, Obviously the collaboration with Leopold Brothers is a really big part of that. Um, I am incredibly proud of that. And this is probably the only podcast in the world where I can brag first about the thing that I'm actually most proud of, which is the incredibly ethical and fair contract structure that that deal has, which is 
so boring and not for most PR, right? They're like, I'm sorry, you want to brag about the contract? Like, yeah, it's a really big deal. I think actually for a big company like Diageo to work with a company like Leopold Brothers when they stay independent, but do it in a way that is like mutually beneficial for everyone. And I'm massively proud of that. And I think hopefully I'll get to do more things like that, you know, to work with someone like Todd, who's just such an incredible distiller and do it in a way that makes his business, you know, safe and feasible and grow. Um, and then obviously we're doing M&A work, you know, I'm Balcones is on our team now. And so I'll be working with them, you know, to try and help them successfully come into, you know, Diageo in a way that helps them like realize their dreams and, you know, be the best they can be. And hopefully I'll keep, just keep opening it up, you know, to be, to be here, to be the next step, you know, when people are ready and they want that and like make beautiful things and make beautiful things, beautiful whiskeys at a scale that people can enjoy, you know, and in a way that is profitable. That's, that's what I've always wanted to do. And I feel, I feel, I feel very nice to be inside a company like Diageo, you know, be able to be supported and treated like a professional and able to actually do that for people. Um, so that feels, that feels really good. And obviously it also enabling a lot of the safety work. So I'm going to try and keep, you know, keep focusing on that and just making opportunities for all of us. And I, I guess, um, you know, you had sort of alluded a little bit in the beginning, uh, you know, you mentioned the, uh, not the, uh, discus friend or foe, um, mm -hmm. that sort of thing early on. Um, where do you kind of see that dynamic now, um, you know, with an organization like ACSA coexisting with a, you know, much older and large organization like discus? I mean, is it sort of, um, you know, they, they kind of, sort of see that uh there's a place for our independent organization to exist and that we can have sort of a mutually beneficial relationship yeah i feel like that's obvious you know i hope i think that that's obvious like when we you know when we started it's natural it's just like growing up you know like when you're young you're very insecure i'm like and i can say that because i speaking about myself was deeply insecure at that time you know, you're like this little distiller is you're like, you know, you're so much defining who you are by saying who you are not, you know, because you because you yourself haven't done anything yet. And, you know, that was kind of where our industry was at that time, right? It was like, almost defining ourselves by who we were fighting against rather than what we were like, standing for, um, you know, it's just a pretty natural place, I think, to be when you're, when you're just setting out. Uh, and now, you know, now we have accomplishments, right? Like now we have a, a print set of principles and values to stand on and a set of accomplishments and a reason for being where we can define ourselves and have that confidence, you know, to walk into a meeting with Discus or whoever and know what we bring to the table and like why we exist. And of course, we the ACSA has to exist. Like it is in everyone's benefit that there be a professional nonprofit trade association governed by elected representatives who can work on their behalf. You know, we are an incredibly regulated industry. It is 
not a sign of anyone being amoral or unethical. It's just natural that bigger distilleries are going to sometimes, not always, but sometimes have different concerns and different priorities than a small business would have. Like there's going to be times where it benefits everybody to work together. And there's going to be times where it benefits us to work independently. Like it's, I don't think there's any industry that is free from those, you know, forces and, and markers. So I think now, hopefully I, I don't know of anybody that doesn't believe that there's a really good reason for both organizations to exist and both organizations to work together when it makes sense and not when it doesn't, you know? Right about here, we stopped recording, but Nicole had a few more things she wanted to mention. Um, ACSA is where I met some of my best friends, and I value it so much. It gave us all, it gave us all a lot, you know, a reason to exist and a place to be and a group that was ours. I think those things are... You almost, you know, almost even more than the dollars and cents of it all, like the sense of belonging and that the confidence that comes from that, I think it helped a lot of us. It's good work. Keep at it. I'm glad you guys are. Thank you. I'm glad you guys are doing this. It's like, I don't know, it feels good. It's amazing that we made it this far. Yeah, I'm certainly glad we did. I like being employed. Yeah. <laughs> right? Same. <laughs> Same. Big fan. Big fan. <laughs> uh, you know what else we didn't talk about, which I want to really give a shout out in the FET of it all. Um, Leopold brothers, man, Todd and Scott were the first people to step up when we put out the call to contribute some funds to hire a lobbyist. And still to this day, it kind of shocks and disappoints me, you know, as like so many of us were out there putting so much of both our own time and money, you know, on the line to try and make this happen that, you know, when we put out the call for, you know, people spend just, just a little bit of money, like in their own best interest, you know, in a way that would clearly save them thousands and thousands and thousands, tens of thousands of dollars, you know, to just pony up and they were the first and only distillery that did in a big way at that time. That $5,000 check that they wrote to the PAC is the only reason that we were able to hire a lobbyist. And if we had not hired a lobbyist, I don't think there's any way that we ever would have been professional enough to get, get included in that. So, um, you know, shout out, kudos. There were a lot of people that did a couple things at real key moments. But that's one of them that should not be forgotten. To Todd Leopold and to the lobbyist, Jim Highland. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Kudos all around. And also to everyone who showed up at a lobby day ever, because that is, they are so expensive and so grueling and so disheartening, <laughs> you know, um, but so important. So let's say massive shout out to everyone who ever showed up at a lobby day to like, make this happen and also to all the state organizations there were a lot of state guilds that were really critical you know in getting out the word to make those phone calls and doing doing the in-between lobby day groundwork you know in their states like all all of those things had to happen and come together for that to for us to get as far as we did and we were told later you know although to us it seemed like eight million years that it took to create this 
that actually to go from sort of idea stage to law in anything less than 15 years is pretty astonishing. So the fact that we did it in seven, you know, I think it's a real testament to how committed we all were. Okay, we're officially done. 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 (laughs) Thank you, though. (laughs) That's our show for today. Thanks again to Nicole Austin for joining us. You can learn more about Cascade Hollow and George Dickel at georgedickel.com. We'll be back soon. Until then, thanks for listening and cheers. Cheers.